Uh, if you were here last week, and many of you weren't, you were on vacation, you'll know that Lauren and I got a surprise when into the sanctuary uh, for the service walked many of our friends from high school. Uh, so there were probably 10 of them or so here who came in unexpectedly. And we ended up spending the rest of the day with them. And as happens when you are with old friends, you talk about old times and you talk about things that took place in your life. In fact, several of the people that we spent the day with were people who were there on the day of my conversion, the day of Lauren's conversion. And so these are people who have walked through us through some of the most important days of our lives and themselves were integral to our own conversion, our own lives. And I don't know why, I don't know if it's just because we were reminiscing or perhaps in light of the fact that today is 9-11 and people were thinking about that, but the discussion of momentous days moved on to a few of them who were uh, alive when Kennedy was shot, uh, and then on to 9-11, recalling you know, where you were, what you were doing on 9-11 when you caught the news of this. There are significant days in our lives, days that are pivotal for us. Sometimes it's a, a personal day that is pivotal. Sometimes it's a national day that is pivotal. As Luke has written the book of Acts, and I recognize that it's now been uh, seven, eight months since we've been in the book of Acts, he has already recorded for us a number of these monumental days in the history of the church. From the opening of Luke and the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the uh, Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit of God, to Stephen's martyrdom, uh, Paul's conversion, uh, or even the day that uh, Peter entered into Cornelius's house. We have seen these significant days recorded by him. This, then, that we read in Acts chapter 13, this day, especially the first one that is here, but then all of these days, if we look at this chapter collectively, are quite the day. Uh, from a worship service in Antioch to the very first steps of this incredible journey. Now, my intention today, obviously, with a reading of this size, is not going to be to try to comment on every one of the verses that is before us. As you saw or noted when we read it, much of this is, in fact, a survey of the entire Old Testament. So to preach on every part of it would be difficult. And a lot of this is repeated from earlier sections in Acts that we have considered together before. But what I want to do is I want to look at some of the, the panels and the themes of what Luke is recording for us here under the theme and under the heading of God's mission in the world, because that's really what this chapter is about. It is about God's missionary intent in this world. And so we'll consider together then the calling, the message, the moment, and the heart, all of them as they relate to missions. So the passage starts out clearly with an emphasis on the calling aspect of this, the setting apart of specific men for an international mission. I was at something last night, I was at an event last night, and somebody said to me, so where did you get your calling? How did you get your calling? We recognize what a calling is, especially as we look at the beginning verses here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. By way of, of reminder, 
Up to this point in the story of Acts, Jerusalem has been the central place for the life of the church. It has been the headquarters for the church, and we have seen the main leaders of the story to be so far Peter and John, sometimes James, but in particular Peter and John in the early chapters of Acts. The other disciples are the central proclaimers of this gospel. But over the last two chapters, 11 and 12, that has begun to shift. And the shift that we've got is from Jerusalem now to Antioch. Now, unless you've got a Bible map right in front of you, just go up the Mediterranean coast, uh, probably in Turkey today, but right near the border of uh, Syria and Turkey is where Antioch is that we're talking about right now. Antioch is becoming the new headquarters for the church, and there is a church that is meeting there in Antioch. In verses 1 through 3, something different starts to happen, and something new starts to happen in the church from Antioch. It is the calling to missions that arises out of the context of a church that is gathered together doing fairly normal things in the life of the church, worshiping together, fasting together, praying together. And the calling that comes to these particular men in this particular setting is intentional. It's purposeful, it's strategic, and it's different than what we have seen before. Prior to this point, the church has expanded, but it's expanded more simply as people have moved about. In other words, as people had either been visiting Jerusalem or passing through Jerusalem and then returned to their homes, they went with the message of the gospel. Or as the persecution took place around the stoning of Stephen, some went out from Jerusalem to other places. The other thing that we have seen is God takes specific individuals in kind of, I don't mean to be uh, uh, cavalier with this, but in kind of one-off situations and connect them with other individuals. So an example of that would be Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, or even uh, Peter being sent to the house of Cornelius. But one gets the, di the sense here in Acts 13 that this is something different because God is calling a group of people to this through the church. And it is the church who is going to then send out these missionaries, these people whom God is calling specifically to this task. As Luke records this story for us, this calling of these people, he's, he's walking a line very carefully. And here's the line that he's walking. On the one hand, Luke recognizes that God is calling people to this ministry. So at the beginning here in uh, chapter 13, he mentions five of the leaders to us who are in the church in Antioch. And he highlights in particular the two who are being sent out. So set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Other people will be mentioned along the way. So for example, in Acts chapter 13, we see that John Mark is part of this early journey of the church as well. Luke thus recognizes the centrality of people in this mission that God is doing. People are important. People need to hear the call of God. People need to respond to the call of God. Luke recognizes that. The line he is walking is that he doesn't want us to be confused about who's behind this mission. 
He doesn't want us to think that this mission merely arose out of a strategic planning session in the church of Antioch that took place. He wants us to be clear that the impetus for this mission, the one who is actually doing the sending of these men out into ministry, is in fact God himself. He is providing the guidance. He is the source of this. He is the efficacy that will be behind, will be behind all of the efforts that they will put into this. And, and it's clear throughout this passage. I can't even highlight all of the places where it is clear for us. But the Spirit of God is there, and that's obvious in this first section. He calls them, He guides them, He fills them, and in the very last patch, uh, verse of this chapter, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is giving them joy in the midst of the ministry to which they have been called. The Spirit is central. The Son of God is also central. This I'll explain as we move along a little bit. But the Son is central in that He is the one who has been sent by the Father. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. He is the one who has commissioned them to do and engage in exactly this work. He is the Savior, the King who has come. And the Father is involved and made clear again in this chapter as the one who has sent the Son, who has raised the Son up, and who has even chosen the people who are going to respond to the message that is being proclaimed to them. So this passage is strewn with references directly to the sovereignty of God in calling these people to this work, uh, which is clearly seen in verse 2 for us. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. To the responses. So the calling of the missionaries to the responses of the people, if you turn over to verse 48... And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. He not only sends, but he appoints the people to eternal life. All the work of our sovereign God. And so Luke walks the line of trying to say, in this calling, I want you to see that people are called. And people need to respond to the call of God. But I want you to recognize exactly that that behind that is not the person himself who's the main thing in view, but God, who is the one who calls and makes any ministry to be an effective ministry. The calling happens here in a context much like this, the context of a worshiping community that is praying and fasting, and God sets apart his people for this task, and out of that church calls, and can we say this? This is often referenced here. He calls the best out of that church. Give me Paul and Barnabas. And one can imagine that the church in Antioch went, gulp, you, you want to take Paul and Barnabas? How about somebody else? How about one of these other guys that we just mentioned here? But Paul and Barnabas are the ones who are sent out while the rest of the congregation there will be supporting and praying for these who are going out. So that's the calling that is there in the passage. And then we come to the message that these servants of God proclaim. These are the first, literal, overseas missionaries, right? When they get their call, they go on a boat. So they go overseas to Cyprus to proclaim as the Spirit of God has led them. And the message that they proclaim is referred to by a number of names here in this passage. It's called the Word of God, verse 5, verse 7, verse 46, the teaching of the Lord, verse 12, the message of salvation, verse 26. 
the good news in verse 32, the word of the Lord in verses 44, 48, 49. There are a variety of words and terms that are used to describe it, but it is one gospel that is being proclaimed to these people. And, and by the way, as we move through two places, of course, there are two uh, areas that are mentioned here, Cyprus and through Cyprus, and then from Cyprus up into the central, central Turkey, Asia Minor, but central Turkey, uh, and up into a place that confusingly enough for us is also called Antioch, but not the same Antioch as the first place, more in central Turkey. So what is Luke emphasizing with this message at this particular stage of his gospel? I think two things are being emphasized by him. One, and the first that's being emphasized, is seen in the very first place that they go to and the first thing that is recorded to us this message, this gospel is powerful. Now, I'm going to tell you something from personal experience that will not be surprising to you at all. When you go out as a missionary, and I'm using the term here in the proper sense of that term, the first thing that overwhelms you is the fact that this task before you is so huge and so impossible. And the second thing that goes along with that is you are incredibly weak. God has to drill into anyone who will serve him and a complete understanding of the enormity of the task, of the impossibility of the task from a, from a human perspective and the personal weakness of whoever is being sent. So think about this. When Jesus receives the Spirit at baptism, anointing for the particular call to his ministry, the Spirit takes him out and leads him into the wilderness for a time which will be a time of physical weakness and temptation. Now the Spirit of God has Barnabas and Saul, John Mark along with them, but Barnabas and Saul, and he leads them over to Cyprus where they're in the courts of a Roman council. There's a power court that they are a part of, and there's a magician that is there. And this magician, I'm going to use the words of, of Job, this magician seeks to darken counsel, to make things unclear, to obscure that which is clear. Uh, John the Baptist came, and when John the Baptist came, he was quoting Isaiah chapter 40, John came to make crooked places straight. And Paul says of this Bar-Jesus who is there, he says, you are making straight things crooked. You are darkening counsel as he tries to influence the Roman proconsul who is there. Uh, teens, 20-year-old 20 pe people, point of reference for this, if you think about, sorry, the two towers, the movie The Two Towers and Theoden the King, and when in that movie, uh, Gandalf comes in to Theoden the King, and there's that, that guy there, um, uh, Wormtongue. I can't remember his first name at the moment, but Wormtongue is his last name. It's kind of a Bunyan-esque name describing exactly uh, who he is and what he's doing. But remember that guy, he's whispering into the ear of Theoden, darkening the counsel that Gandalf gives. And I think Tolkien had to have this, he had to have Acts 13 open as he's writing that particular section of the book. 
because that's exactly what is taking place in this scene. And Paul turns and says, this is coming to an end right now. There's a power confrontation that takes place right at the outset of this ministry. And what is demonstrated clearly is that power belongs to the Lord. So he who would darken counsel, namely this bar Jesus, is himself darkened. He is unable to see for a time, and lo and behold, light comes so that the proconsul can see the truth of the things that Paul and Barnabas are saying. This is the message. The gospel is the power of God. Right out of the chute, we're going to see that. Secondly, and this is unsurprising, the gospel is good news about this message. It is good news. I love this, this entranceway that is given to Paul here in verse 15. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What an opening. What an opening to be sitting in the synagogue. And I can imagine Paul going, really? Did you just ask me to speak any words of encouragement? I, I, I actually have some words of encouragement. Let me talk to you for a little bit about these encouraging words that I have, and you can imagine his excitement to do that. Uh, last night, uh, 14 hours ago, uh, I was with some Jewish friends celebrating an anniversary. It was a big to-do, and I'm sitting at a table uh, with a bunch of Jewish friends, and they said to me two things. Number one, explain your calling to us. Number two, what's the deal with Calvinism? Who's a Calvinist? And I sat there, and I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I, you're actually going to ask me to do that right now. And I made it clear. I said, listen, I didn't bring this up, okay? I'm a, I'm a guest at the wedding anniversary. I didn't bring it up. You asked me the question, I'll respond. Paul's got to be thrilled. Uh, and what a history he then recounts, showing that Jesus, in Jesus, you know, what, what can you say? We have all of the promises of God fulfilled. We have the great king that has come. We have salvation we have the one in whose name forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed because God raised him from the dead and didn't allow him to see any corruption at all. We have freedom from the sentence of disobedience to the law. Paul says, this is good news. This is central to you. And we bring you, verse 32, the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. I've got good news to proclaim to you. The message is powerful, and it is a message of gladness. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's good news, the calling, the message, and now we come to this critical moment the moment has arrived in one sense, talking about the moment of this calling, all the way up through the moment that uh, is the climax of this chapter here as Paul declares this good news to him. What Luke has done through the story that he has crafted to this point and through allowing and highlighting the portions of Paul's word that he spoke in the synagogue is done that which we have seen done oft times now in the book of Acts, is he's collected, he's connected the dots. He's gone back to Abraham, and he says, let me, let me show you something now. Let me go from Abraham to Moses to Samuel to David. Let me then go to John the Baptist, 
And let me culminate all of those promises of God in Jesus. And from Jesus, I want to go to the disciples. I want to go to the Holy Spirit. I want to go to Paul and Barnabas being sent out from the church. And we're going to bring it right to this present moment right now. And essentially what Paul does in his preaching, what Luke does, is say, see the connection. The connection is a line, you know, if you look in the back of your Bibles at a map of the journeys of Paul, you've done that before, right? You've all looked at your Bible maps and seen the journey. It's all kind of lines going this way, that way, and this way. But Paul's point is there's a straight line in the purposes of God, and it brings us right to this moment right now, right where I stand before you and I declare the word of God to you, and I tell you that this is good news, that Jesus has raised him from the dead. There's a straight line that comes right now to this moment. What are you going to say? What? are you going to do? He says to the Jews, to the proselytes, to the God-fearers at the synagogue, please don't ignore this. Your brothers, his brothers, my brothers, my, your brothers in Jerusalem ignored this. When they heard this message, they didn't listen to it. They did exactly what the prophets said they would do. Even if someone came to them and told them about it, they would not believe him. And he says to these guys in Antioch, these, these folks who are gathered, don't do that. This is a message that right now is primarily directed to the Jewish people. This people who had had the torch entrusted to them, the light of God entrusted to them. And in their failure to bear that light unto the world, Jesus himself takes that up as the light of the world. Jesus has come to restore the lost tribes of Israel, and at this moment, everything's on the line. How will they respond at this moment? The warning is given, the moment is at hand, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And here's the moment. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That is a huge moment in the history of the world. We are turning to the Gentiles. It's a moment of incredible sadness, incredible sadness. And I want to be clear of some things as, as I move right in, in this section, which is obviously a delicate section for reasons that we can imagine, this transition that takes place here. Paul is not going to give up on the Jews. He's going to continue to go to the Jew first. He's going to continue to go to synagogues and to speak whenever he has opportunity. He is going to, as he says in Romans, magnify my ministry so that if it's possible, I can provoke some of them to jealousy so that they will turn. They will turn and follow Jesus Christ. Paul isn't ready to give up on them completely as if I'll never say another thing to another Jew. And yet, a shift in focus clearly takes place. A turn, perhaps physical, takes place in this very moment. It is a moment of profound sadness 
for the firstborn of God, Israel. And it is a moment of profound gladness for the nations. Which brings us to the last aspect of this, the heart, the heart of missions or a heart for missions. The gospel gets at the heart. Missions is a matter of the heart. Missions is going to stir things up. It is going to stir up anger and sadness and gladness, and it will rip your heart out. The more you are engaged in international missions, it will break your heart. For the Jews, Paul would say this about them. I have unceasing anguish in my heart for them. He's not cavalier about their dismissal. I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my brothers, for my sisters who have turned their back and will not listen to this message. And yet, and yet, in their rejection of the message and the messengers, a new river of gladness is opened and it is directed towards the nations. Verse 47. In verse 47, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. He quotes part of it. I, I want to read the whole of Isaiah 49, 6 for us, just that verse. This is the Lord speaking of his servant. And here's what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. So that's, that's good, but it's too small. It's too small. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was the purpose that God had originally given to Israel, that they would do exactly that. In Israel's fa failure to do that, Messiah takes it. Messiah is given the responsibility of bearing the light to the nations and restoring the preserved ones of Israel. And here what takes place as Paul quotes this verse right here, Paul owns it for himself. It was Israel's mission. It became Messiah's mission. And now Paul says of him and Barnabas of the church, it's ours. For so the Lord has commanded us, not just the servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, not just Israel. Now he's commanded us, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Clearly, brothers and sisters, the point of something like this is not for anyone to rejoice in someone else's downfall. We don't do a little dance, the Jews rejected, we got in kind of thing. We don't rejoice in that. There are plenty of warnings in Scripture against that kind of arrogance. The point is to delight and to be humbled by the fact that we have been included now in receiving this message of grace and of life. God's gladness has become our gladness. And then the line continues to extend. So the line extends through them and it extends right to us today in this moment, the living word of God, as it came to the synagogue there 
Jews, Gentiles who were gathered there to hear it, the living word of God comes to us as it is proclaimed to us. David is highlighted here. David is highlighted as a man after God's heart. And we love that phrase. We know that is there. And then in verse 36, Paul says this about David. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. A man after God's own heart served the purpose of God in his generation. Paul and Barnabas, with that same spirit-given heart, served the purpose of God in their generation. And then the line comes right here, right now. moment for us when we are confronted by the Word of God, confronted by the heart of God, the mission that He has entrusted to the church as a whole and to send out some in particular. And so I ask this question of you. What is the purpose that God has for you in your generation? They saw themselves as a people with a particular purpose, a particular mission that has been entrusted to them. Acts 13 is the first step. It is the first step in intentional, purposeful, spirit-directed mission of the church to go out and to proclaim the good news. It is the first step or the first steps. And so I ask you, in this moment, what is your first step? What will be your first step in engagement with the mission of the gospel? For Nate Palmer and for McKenna Canale, perhaps one of the first steps was taking a trip to DR and then Wednesday night sharing about it, coming and talking to us about what they had experienced there, about what they had seen, about what they sought to do as young missionaries on a short-term trip. If, you, if first step is too dramatic because we've walked with the Lord, okay, let me ask you this question. What's your next step? What is your next step in being involved in international missions? Now, you are a mature enough congregation to understand this. I'm going to say it anyway. Obviously, God didn't call everybody in Antioch to leave Antioch and go someplace else. Of the entire church that was there in Antioch, in this passage, we see that two or three with John Mark were called to the ministry to go in particular. But everybody in Antioch had a vested interest in what was taking place. Everybody cared about the mission that these men were being sent to do. Praying, fasting, worshiping, sending them out. What is the next step that you can take in your engagement in international missions? It is our responsibility. What are you going to do with it? Sebastian's got pamphlets around here somewhere. I'm sure the Kirklands have prayer cards around here somewhere. What is the next step that you're going to do? Are you going to find out more about missions? Are you going to commit yourself to praying more regularly for missions? Are you going to look for some way that you can encourage a, miss a missionary? Or to come alongside the thistleways and say, listen, I'm sorry, it's been a really tough time for you. I am praying for you. Is there any way I can comfort you, encourage you in looking at God's purposes? What are you going to do for the next step? Maybe that involves going for some of you. 
or at least being willing to go, or at least considering whether or not you would be willing to go, the line continues right to us, right to the church. And for those who will be engaged in the work of international missions, here is the reality. You will be more engaged in the work of this local church, in the outreach of this local church, in this particular place where God has stationed us. So those who are more likely to be involved in international missions are the exact same people who are more likely to have heard my announcement about Lynn Villa and say, hey, maybe. Maybe I could go to Lynn Villa. That's a small thing. Maybe I could bring something in next week for the Colonial Neighborhood Council. Maybe I could be engaged in that. Maybe I could come when the Kirklands are giving their presentation on the first Wednesday of October and learn more about the Kirklands ministry. Maybe when this, this uh, Bill Edgar concert on the October 21st comes up, I could actually invite a neighbor to come and to enjoy that concert and get to know other people. What is your next step going to be? Luke has preserved a moment for us. It's our moment now as we remember it, as we recognize the living Word of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me be as clear as Paul. Your next step is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The warning is there. Don't ignore that message. Don't ignore that Lord. Someone is here telling you about it. God has brought you here. Don't ignore it. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom there is forgiveness of sins, the one in whom there is salvation because he's the king who was raised and did not see the corruption of his body. Believe that which is encouraging good news. But for those of you who are already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is your next step in his mission. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. People of God from every nation, be glad, spread gladness.